Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you. We are in Romans chapter 7 this morning. We will look to consider verses 7 through 12, but let's stand for the reading of God's word and we'll take verse 7 and only verse 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. Please be seated. Covetousness. Covetousness. (laughs) Not an easy word. Upholding scripture, parentheses, the law. That's the lesson handed to us in this seventh chapter that started in chapter six, this topic. He is anticipating objections. And that's why he's gone back to the question-answer format. And if you've preached and pastored, you know when you make certain statements, you anticipate objections. Things don't, you know, people don't agree. They maybe have been exposed to another opinion and they think that's the right one. Uh, and, but Paul, he is correct, of course, and that's, this is what he is addressing. By preaching grace, are you condemning the law, Paul? See, that's one of the objections he knew he would hear if he were there in Rome. He knew it would be happening in the congregation, and some could use it to cause great divisions. Are you saying the Old Testament law is useless, Paul, now that we have grace? He's anticipating that, too. Has Jesus made the law sin? Well, even if those in the congregation, largely Jewish, with some Gentile converts to Judaism, but now all Christians, they would still have family members and relations with people in their community who would have said these things to them if they didn't say it themselves. And Paul is, of course, very mindful of this. These teachings that we're getting, especially in chapter 7, come from one who served God more than most. And the more he served God and the more successful he was because of God, he had a greater realization of who he was in the presence of his God. Paul knew that he was a sinner, and it didn't die down because of his achievements. It actually increased his awareness, his realization. I'm not better than anybody else. And, you know, the flesh would say, well, according to the merit system, you are. But he's not in the flesh. And this is important. Maybe I'll repeat it next session. I don't know because there's so much information in verses 13 to 25. But... I'll say it now, and maybe you'll remember that I said it when we get there next session. In the year 55, oh, about 20 years after his conversion, he wrote to the church at Corinth, just recently, about the time he's writing this church to the Romans. He says, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So here he is, conscious, 20... before this too, but he's, it's in print 20 years after his conversion thereabout. He says, I don't deserve to be an apostle. I am one. And he upheld that. 
And then, maybe six years later, as he's writing to the Ephesians, after shipwrecked, after stonings and being chased, and all of the things that were going on in his story, he's now in jail, he writes to the Ephesians, to me who am less than the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he's now, as he's continued to serve, continued to stack up the victories, not only is he the least of the apostles, he's least of all the Christians. That's his view. That's what he was saying about himself. This is important because the things he's going to say as he progresses through chapter 7 are about a man who is not a spectator, but a participant in Christianity. By the time he writes to Timothy in his first letter to him, perhaps two years after that Ephesian letter, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I am the biggest sinner of them all. This is not uh, false humility. This is genuine. Coming from a man like this, all of us should be mindful that uh, we shouldn't be self-impressed. So Paul confirms firsthand his experience as a sinner, even after years of being used unlike most people. So this is the man who's writing the things that we're going to consider this morning, because anticipating again the challenges, he look, look now at verse 7, if you would. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Well, the grace has overruled the law. Looking back at verse 6, when he's, he's answering what his last statement, but now, have we been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter? What then? See, then it's connected. It segues right into to the other one. And so, grace has overruled the Old Testament law without destroying it. I'm going to have to repeat some of the things we've been going through because it's, it's a little tricky. It wouldn't have been tricky to his audience because they were, they were guilty of this. They lived in this world. They lived in a world where Moses had given them the Old Testament and the rabbis had given them even more stuff that they should not have, but they did anyway. They lived in this world. And so did Paul. God's word points sin out as sin, as a crime against God. Also against man, but always against God. Sin. Uh, it, it's in the law. And it points to my defect. The law points to my defect. And since the verbs are in the past tense, he's going back to the time of his conversion. Not when he was a Pharisee, and I'll plan to hit that pretty well so that uh, uh, you'll understand it. And, I, you know, this is a, a lot of controversy in this chapter with many of the Bibles, uh, study Bibles and commentators. Everybody's trying to get Paul out of sin. Everyone, he's not talking about himself. Paul says, don't you put me on that pedestal. I'll have none of it. I am the chief of sinners. And uh, so it's best to take this seventh chapter as Paul talking about himself. When he gets to verse 14 through the end, the verbs 
are in the present tense and refer to his present experiences as a Christian. When he says, I try to do everything right according to God, but I fail. Not everything, but enough. It only takes one mistake, one sin, to really irritate a true believer. So he is clear. The law itself is not sinful, nor has grace made it sin. Instead, the law identifies sin, which is the role of the law. He says, I would not have known sin except through the law. This is uh, autobiographical. Again, this is not the language of a spectator. This is the language of a participant. This is a language, this, this entire chapter is a language of somebody who struggles with their own sinful nature, just like the rest of us. Not every single moment of every single day, but it, it doesn't take much. It only takes one sin to damn a soul, the very potent stuff. So, keeping himself off the pedestal, he says, I'm not above reproach. I'm just like you. I'm identifying with you. How awful it would be if Paul was speaking down to them. I know how much you struggle. I don't, but you do. Because you're messed up. I no longer am. Christian perfection is not achievable even if you serve like Paul. The legalist can't bear that. You'll be disillusioned after a while if you think at some point you're going to be perfect in this life. It's, it's a hard, knock-down, drag-out affair. And the best of them in Scripture have stumbled. So again, as I mentioned last session, there are those that will admit that we are sinners, but they're reluctant to admit that they do sin. Years later, after this Roman letter, around the time of the Ephesian letter, He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. In his own words, he's saying, I'm not perfect. I struggle in life also. Well, thank you, Lord, for giving us these testimonies of men like Moses, who struggled with anger, Men like David, uh, David, you know, sometimes I read the Psalms of David and I say, you know, you're whining. Stop your whining. <laughs> They're persecuting me. But it's because he was in it. He was pursuing the righteous life. The Holy Spirit was in that man. And that's what God told Samuel. He's got the heart that I want him to have. He's got a heart after me. Paul was a Pharisee, and here's what the Bible says Pharisees uh, lived like. Luke chapter 16, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, that's what it says. So we're getting an idea of who this man was before his conversion. Before he writes these things in the midst of his Christian life, he continues, you are those, Jesus said to them, who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Well, the Pharisees hated hearing that. How much did they hate hearing that, Pastor? Enough to want to kill him. And they began to plan his death. It was the law that pointed sin out to me as sin and to the same as you. Otherwise, it'd be a free-for-all. And we have, you know, we live in a time, it's not the first time in history, but we have a generation that is trying to redefine what sin is. 
to revise uh, God's opinion and declaration. Not God's opinion, but His declaration. Why the Bible Haters Club cannot stand the Ten Commandments in the courthouses is because it convicts them of sin and of righteousness at the same time. Man's sense of sin is always awakened by God's law. And remember, when we use the word law in Romans 7, it's the basic meaning is the law of Moses. And to be prophets, you could add the rest of the scripture, but mainly the law of Moses. That's the, 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 the hub. But the human side of the whole equation is this. The rabbinical Pharisees had muddied up the waters. And so Paul can't just talk about the beauty of the Old Testament without being mindful that his audience, many of them, have wrong opinions about their own law. In fact, he, a Pharisee once, had wrong opinions about his own God. Or else there would never have been a Damascus encounter with Jesus Christ. But there was. Man's sense of sin is awakened by God through his word, and sneaky sin will even leave a sinner feeling self-righteous if they obey the law. That's why when we get to verse 13, he says that sin is exceedingly sinful. Very potent stuff. I'm amazed sometimes, you know, we try to deal with sin and, and the sinner and and on one hand, you get those, you're too hard. On the other hand, you get those, that you're not mean enough. Well, the law, in one sense, is not so much a thermostat that influences its surroundings. That's what a thermostat does. It makes changes to the environment. But it is more like a thermometer that tells you what's going on in the environment. And the law does that. It tells you what's happening in your heart. The pharisaical mind only looks at the thermostat or the thermometer when it comes to others. The pharisaical heart, the legalist, pulls out the law when it's about others. So he says, for I would not have known covetousness. Well, what is that? The hidden desires of the heart. The Ten Commandments were largely, you know, external. If a person had an idol, you could see the idol. If it was in their theology, it would show up. But what about a person who's craving something that doesn't belong to them? That does not always show up on the outside. You can get away with hiding that one. And so, again, the great function of the Mosaic Law was to expose sin. And Paul is saying, it did with me. It exposed it for me, sinfully desiring, desiring the possessions of another one. Exodus 20, verse 17. The Ten Commandments, they scan us, the inner self, but without the Holy Spirit. It can be ignored, largely. Much of it can just be sidestepped. Covetousness, for sure. Psalm 32, this is David writing... Once Nathan the prophet had exposed David for his sin, David went to write more scripture after that, and one of them was Psalm 32. And in that psalm, he talks about what he was going through when he was ignoring the law, when he would not come under the conviction of the scripture. 
He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. He was resisting God. He was miserable. But he would not confess his sin until he was confronted. And so we can camouflage the outer self. And uh, others won't see what's going on. But God, of course, sees. Going back to Paul upholding the law, he wrote to the Hebrews years later, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You can't hide from God. And that, that tenth commandment, you shall not covet, is talking about the heart. It would be criminal to take a bottle of poison in bold letters, poison, with the little skull and crossbones. Some of you might remember the iodine bottles. My first, I used to like to just look at the bottle. Where else did you see that? Anyway, what if you took that label and instead you put nectar of champions? And instead of the skull and crossbones, you put a dove. You see the crime you'd be committing? Well, that's what sinners want to do with the teachings of Scripture, with sin. They want to change its name. It's not perversity, it's gay. It's not murder, it's abortion. It's not adultery, it's an affair. And they do this, they try to these euphemisms, they try to, you know, put a bow on things, and, but it's poison. It's alienating you from God. And the Christian knows if they've been guilty of those things, God is eager to take you and, and make you his own. And you'll never think the same way about those things ever again. You might struggle with some of the, uh, you'll still struggle with sin, but you won't condemn it, uh, condone it. And this is a widespread practice, and we're seeing it right here in our lifetime. So once more, the function of the law is to give sin its proper name. It is poison. Keep the skull and crossbones on it. It's deadly. It's not the nectar of champions. It's not, it does not bring you the peace of a dove. Zephaniah makes this little statement. The unjust, the wicked, know no shame. Yeah, because they've, they've worked to take shame out of sin. The very thing the law refuses to do. And so we look at someone like Cain. He had no problem killing his brother without remorse. But he looked out for himself still. Oh, your punishment's too hard. Balaam had no problem enriching himself against God's word by cursing others. I'm going to try to get rich by cursing others. And when he couldn't do that, he gave instructions on how to do it. Then there was Korah. He enjoyed being delivered from Egyptian slavery under the leadership of Moses. And then he defied Moses and led a rebellion against Moses. And the ground opened up and swallowed him. And the others that were with him were killed with a plague. These swim in the pond of the self-will. And that's what sin is all about. 
the self-will, the carnal nature, the sinful nature, and the carnal nature. And we'll get to that in more detail next session. But here is a short list of those who suffered consequence because of covetousness. Balaam, he lost his mind. Peter called him insane. David lost his testimony. Gehazi lost his ministry. Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives. All of those coveted first. All of those wanted what was not theirs to have. Lucifer. He wanted the throne of God. That's right there in Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. And what is the outcome? What, was the, what is the final note on Lucifer? Revelation 20.10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, that is the Antichrist, and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is a big sin. Just because it's the tenth of nine, of the tenth of a list of ten, doesn't mean it's somehow not as important. Holiness plays hardball. Because sin is not tinkering with us. Sin is not tinkering with humanity. Just look at the animal kingdom. How vicious it is. Covetousness. It is the subtlest of all sins and perhaps the most perpetrated of all sins. And so Paul says, unless the law had said, you shall not covet, I would have gone doing it without any problem. You shall have no evil desires. That's what the commandment says. God had to point it out. Just like parents have to point out to toddlers. What is the law? What is harmful? And we tend to think, well, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I, I don't really need so much of that, maybe. Maybe you think like that. I hope not. What do you think happened in the crowd when Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount, I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you think that type of sin is only limited to sexual desire? Of course not. You can look at other things with the same, you know, licking of the chops. I want that, but it's not yours to want. And so, again, the Bible cuts to the inside. And we who love the Lord, we know it, we love it, because we know Him. We know how gentle He is. We know what grace is. But Paul is writing to those who are still confused about this. Or, again, have family members and associates who will be challenging this New Testament teaching. And so in verse 8 he says, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. But sin, that rebellion, taking opportunity, that word opportunity in the Greek is actually starting point. The law exposed sin and the sinner's nature for what they are, harmful. Poison, skull and crossbones. And before Christ came into our lives, we decided what was sin, what was right, and what was wrong. After Christ, that all stopped. Once you come to Christ, everything's now filtered through him. You want to know if you're born again? Well, you think about, you know, you you see things through the eyes of Christ. You're going to line up with that. You may still struggle, but you're going to line up with him. That's what you want. Had God not forbidden 
such sins, then there'd be no such thing as evil in our thinking. But the harm would still be taking place. Adam and Eve were told at the beginning, don't touch that tree. And they did it anyway. Don't eat from that tree. And so it was forbidden because it was harmful. And now we know. And the trespasser acts on that covetous attitude, finds themselves where they don't belong because of their fallen nature. And so Paul says, this produced in me all manner of evil desire. What strikes me here is not the word evil desire as much as the pronoun, me, produced in me. You can't say, well, I just did it for Paul. Maybe covetedness is not a problem you suffer with, but there's something else, and you know what it is, too. Paul was willing to give up, say, I do covet. What else do you do, Paul? Well, that's none of your business. <laughs> Law exposes the hidden nature of sin and the sinner. Here's an example. How about those cameras on traffic lights? Do they arouse in you a spirit of resentment? I hope they don't come to my neighborhood. Why? Abide by the law. You don't have to worry about them. Well, I might not. (laughs) They're taking away our chance to break the law. That's how the heart is. We see that. And if it's not with that, it's something else. I'm a little irritated by speed limits that are too small. What's the thing with the school zones? Let the kids learn how not to cross the street when the cars are moving so fast. (laughs) Experience is a good teacher. (laughs) These things expose me for who I am. Just little things like that. They expose me. The sinner is in there. The angels won't think like that. What are you talking about? For apart from the law, sin was dead. in In the sense of the conscience. But God's commandment exposed Cain for who he was. He knew he was supposed to bring a a blood sacrifice, and he opted out. And he was self-impressed as a rebel and a brazen murderer. Abel's obedience enraged Cain. And so it is one thing to have a criminal in your house. It's quite another one to hide him there. Well, verse 9, and of course the criminal is to sinful nature. And the the spiritual man will not look to hide the criminal. Wants him out in the presence of God, that is. Verse 9, I was alive once without the law. When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Well, the words apart from the law indicate a state of no law. Now, here's where all the com- a lot of commentators want to fuss about, well, he can't be talking about it. Or this is when he was a Pharisee. No Pharisee would admit to being without the law. They were the law. The personification of it, they felt. And so when was Paul ever without law and unchallenged by sin at the same time? At his conversion. And the processes of that conversion. After Ananias had came and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Ananias didn't come and show up and say, hey, this is what the law says. He said, it's time for you to get baptized, to receive the Holy Spirit. Because you've been living with just the Bible, without the Holy Spirit. What a revelation that is. And when he met a person, not a code, everything changed for Paul. And so the scripture says that Ananias said to Paul, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And once that happened, is that, that the sanctification for Paul also. He did not instantly know everything. He didn't want to even be around people. He got alone by himself to be with the Lord. He had so much to, to correct in his life. The law kept a man from struggling with deep indwelling sin. Not all. Again, there were those righteous Jews who had just the Old Testament. And men like, again, David and Daniel. But look at Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm an unclean man. I've been dwelling in the midst of an unclean being. He had this epiphany in the presence of God. Well, it really wasn't an epiphany. God revealed these things to him just by being there in front of him. So, this was not the law's intention. It is what men did with the law, except for a few exceptions. What was not the law intention? That the man would be self-righteous. That was not the intention of the law. But that is largely the outcome. Or else those who held the scriptures would not have been so against the Christ when he came. But conversion changes all that. Let's consider Paul the Pharisee. Why he could not say, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, I died. That happened at conversion. Well, here's Paul before, before conversion. He had no struggle in his heart when he guarded the clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death. He witnessed it. He relished it. This is what he was about. If he could have, if the law of the Pharisees did not prohibit it, he would have cast the first stone, and the second, and the third. There was no resistance in his heart when he arrested Christians and imprisoned them for saying Jesus is the Messiah. There was no second thought in his heart when he rode off to Damascus as a religious bounty hunter to arrest even more Christians who are outside of Jerusalem. He went out of his way to hunt us down. Don't tell me he had the Spirit of God in his heart, because the Bible doesn't tell us that. It tells us the opposite. In fact, if you read Acts 26, verse 9, Galatians 1.13, Philippians 3.6, you'll read him tell you the same thing about himself. There was no heaviness of his heart for a sinful heart. No burden for the Gentiles. No burden for the Christians. No sense of grace. He knew nothing of spiritual character. He knew self-righteousness. He knew greed. He knew power. That was Saul of Tarsus. And so he, being one of them, he understood the misuse of the law. And now that grace was here... He was doing everything he could to set it straight. That the law is good, but there's grace now. And here's where the law did not uh, reach its goals. And he lays it all out for them. The Galatian letter, again, is one of the great documents against life with a, a Bible without the Holy Spirit. And Romans is largely that too. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Well, Christ brings an awakening when he comes. That's what happened with Isaiah. You know, when I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. Woe is me. That was the outcome of him seeing God. He saw himself. Daniel fell as though he couldn't move, as though he were dead. Same with John, the, the apostle. Well, 
Before Christ, I decided again what was acceptable and what was not. And Christ changes it all. And this is part of the meaning when we read in Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. In that one little verse is the work of the Holy Spirit and sanctification is the light of the world in operation. Opposition to all sin as an offense to God comes only from having this relationship of grace in, with, with God. And again, there were those in the Old Testament that were full of the Spirit. But things changed a little bit more when Messiah finally came. That's why Jesus said, you shall receive power and you shall be what? Good people. Well, that's part of the goal still. You shall be witnesses to me. The Holy Spirit's been available to other believers, but not in the sense of preaching Messiah, the Christ. That was something that was a development in the history of humanity. Just like there were laws before Moses came along, Enoch knew them, but then there were more laws that were given. There are these processes, these dispensations. Uh, Jesus said, when he said, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill, he's saying there is more. There is more happening in humanity than you know. And God is on top of these things. And as I pointed out, I think last session, Judaism could not fit the world. It would be very difficult for an Eskimo to comply with the law of Moses. How, I mean, how would he, where would he find ceremonially clean animals to eat? How would he get to Jerusalem three times a year? How would his family survive up there without him? If he, I mean, it's just too many complexities, and God saw it all. As to all the little details, why did God wait and why does that? Well, you know, those things are hidden. But what is not hidden is what we do know and is very clear. Our responsibility to preach the gospel is very clear. And so in verse 7, he says, In the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. The law, for its diagnostic purposes, was perfect. Flawless in pointing out sin. Whether the sin, the sinner saw it or not, that conviction, as Paul, again, didn't see the covetousness of his own heart. The Pharisees didn't. That's why they loved the money. First Timothy, he writes, he says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's what he says. How am I going to use the law lawfully? The Spirit of God has to be in me. But I have this flesh, even before the coming of the Holy Spirit, even before the New Testament, the flesh was just as active as ever. Theoretically, the law is perfect. Theoretically, Christianity is perfect. We could just get rid of this sin thing, this temptation thing. If there could just be no devil, if we could just have no flesh. I like everything in the Scripture. It is perfect. Practically, to carry it all out, all the time, we can't. Again, the legalists will object to that. Paul is saying, I know, I'm a participant, I'm not a spectator. 
I started out recognizing that I wasn't as good as the other apostles. Then I realized, you know what, I'm not even as good as other Christians. Then I had this sense that I'm the chief of sinners. And so some legalist is going to walk up and say that they're better than Paul. So yeah, on paper, the scripture is wonderful, it's perfect. But why did it have to prohibit the very things that my flesh wants to do? Well, this is the, the, the law of, of responsibility and accountability. The law is powerless to save from the virus of sin. It points it out, but it can't really deal with it. The law does not reward us for keeping the law. It only punishes us for breaking it. Under sheer law, what was Paul, what was Saul of Tarsus? Well, I just read some of the things. He was misguided, as was Jonah. He majored in condemnation. He didn't even bother to minor in grace. There was none. When he writes to the Corinthians, this is what he says about the sheer weight of the Old Testament. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying it's a beautiful law, but it's condemning. And then he, in contrast, holds the New Testament to it. He says, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. It is more beautiful. It is more wonder, wonderful. It is more far-reaching. It goes outside of Israel. It reaches to the Gentile. It sees the sinner for what the sinner is and still saves him nonetheless. Yeah. It is not looking to condemn. It does not walk around with a magnifying glass. It walks around with the heart of love. There are those, they want the, the Sermon on the Mount to apply to everybody else but them. They want 1 Corinthians to apply to everybody. 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of love. They want everybody else to be loving while they're not. But they'll never say it. They just do it. And my saying this is for all of us to say to ourselves, is it I, Lord? Do I do that? Do I like receiving love? I just don't like giving any? Do I dislike meanness? But am I mean? Uh, pettiness, uh, it, it irritates me. Am I petty? Well, the ministry of grace just holds its hands out and say, come, let's work on this. I'm not looking to get rid of you. I'm not looking to banish you. Verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Well, he's following He's saying you just got raw law, sheer law, it's just death. He's personifying sin in this 11th verse. He's saying it ruins everything. And when you realize you're a sinner, you're powerless to keep the law. But yet grace, what does grace say? Okay, Paul, you recognize you're not one of the apostles. You recognize you're the least of the, of the saints. You recognize you're the chief of sinners. But look at the grace. I'm still using you. And you know I love you. And you know that if I'm using you and I'm loving you, that I'm using others and I'm loving them too. And then you know that there are others who don't yet know me, but they will. And I'll love them. And so when the gospel, when we're told by Christ, what you bind on earth, I'll bind in heaven. He's saying, when you give the gospel, I'll back it up. It's not going to bounce. Uh, when, when you preach the gospel and you say to a sinner, if you confess with your heart, 
And your mouth, with confession is made with the mouth, in the heart one believes. If you tell a sinner, you confess your sins, you come to Christ, he will forgive you. Well, we, that's where the authority comes from. When Christ says, when you, when you give that formula that I've given you, and it's genuine, it's going to be true. You don't have to say to yourself, boy, I sure hope this guy gets saved. I don't really like him too much. I'm actually hoping <laughs> that would not, that would be very bad. Well, anyway, sin always deceives, often destroys, but uh, sin is not the law. And the law is not sin. It, it just, it, it's what, it's a stone. It's, it's what it is. It's not going to change. Paul's pharisaical world collapsed upon him. So I read this in the last session. I know I keep referring to the last session because it's all tied, and I'll refer to this one the next time because it all goes together. But it's just too much, I think, to, to deal with um, in, in one session, at least the way I feel led to, to deal with it. Now, I was saying something, and it was going to be pretty good. <laughs> Pharisees. So the, the pharisaical world, when Paul came to Christ, it all collapsed. It was done. But it didn't happen that way for all the Pharisees. And we read about them in Acts chapter 15. When they came along and they were still clutching to their pharisaical thinking. You have to be circumcised or you can't be saved. And Paul fought against that his entire life and made many victories. I don't know what would have happened to Christianity if God did not raise up a man like Paul. Because Peter and Barnabas almost blew it there at Antioch when they came and they, they pushed away the Gentiles and they, they gravitated to the Jews that had come up from Jerusalem that James sent to spy them out. Paul said that they came to spy out our liberty. Those boys don't get it. They're Christians and they don't get it. Legalism thrived around James. And that's not a, necessarily a bad shot against James because if you were to put yourself in his place... Oh, man, take a special man to be successful with the gospel amongst those hardcore uh, Old Testament Jews. Uh, so you, you, you've got to factor that in before you just say, why can't James be like Paul? Well, because there were Jews that still needed to hear things that they could only hear from someone like James, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the clashes between the two men. So everything is not just, a, you know, a, an easy fit. There's a lot of grappling in this life, both theologically and practically. And if you don't have grace, you, you, you're going to be, you won't be so fruitful. And in time, you're going to find out that your hard heart does not benefit anyone. But by that time, you would have made a mess of quite a few things. I think many legalists never. They go through the entire life. They just ignore their own sins and they just judge everybody else and they pretend to be saved and all of that stuff. Some of them may even be. Uh, but uh, then there are others that learn grace and they're not quick to point the finger at others. They believe that, you know, if I got this thing in my eye, I better watch out before, no pun intended, I better watch out before I go trying to take a little speck out of somebody else's eye. See, read the Sermon on the Mount and ask yourself, do I do this? Do I get all of this right all the time? The Sermon on the Mount chops everybody down to size. And yet we love it. 
We love the Sermon on the Mount. Well, coming back to this, verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Now, we're not going to get to the next wave of instruction that he's going to give them. But he's going to lay out how the carnal man is still very much active in the life of a believer. The natural man is the sinner that's lost. The carnal man is the believer that is behaving like they're lost. And then there is, of course, the spiritual man who's getting the upper hand over the carnal man. And those two can bounce back and forth on certain matters to some degree. Uh, so we'll get that next session. But in this one where he says, Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. He rejects any argument that blames the Old Testament as the cause of human sin. He's already laid it out. It doesn't cause sin. It points to it. And don't be hitting me with, Hey, Paul, what are you saying about the Old Testament? It's no good. The grace has replaced it. He's, don't, don't hit me with that. I've already told you. We're not replacing the Old Testament. The rituals and stuff, they're done in Christ. But the moral code, it stands. And the revelations about Yahweh, who is in the Old Testament, who is Christ in the New Testament, it stands. And uh, nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. There's nothing wrong with honoring your parents, which, with worshiping the only true God, with not murdering, with not stealing, with not lying. There's nothing wrong with those things. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Psalm 19. Well, you say, well, but that's Old Testament. Well, let's go to the New Testament. And we'll close with this. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, before I do this, I want to say, it is really hard preparing for Romans 6, 6 and 7. And, and then there's Romans 9 coming. So it, it's, it's just, you should know, I say that. So if you say to yourself, you know, yeah, I, I, when I get to certain sections of Romans, I don't understand what he's saying. Well, because it's so much history involved, so much culture involved, so many different personalities, twists and turns involved. But once you begin to see those, you can get a handle on it. So coming back to this, uh, Paul, in the Old Testament, this is what he has to say about the Old Testament. In his second letter to Timothy, he's close to the end of his life. He probably has another two years to live. It seems that way. We're not entirely sure. He says to Timothy that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Stop there. There was no New Testament when Timothy was a child. And so he's talking about the Old Testament. And he says they're Holy Scriptures. That from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Well, if Daniel could understand enough to be righteous... Well, so can you. However, now that Christ has come, baked into that statement, he's saying, you have the Old Testament, you were raised with it, you should now be able to see Messiah has come. You have both the old and now the new. Because Timothy's probably in his 30s at this time, at least. And he continues talking about the Old Testament, talking about the New Testament, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed. The same way God breathed into the lump of clay that was Adam, that became Adam. God breathed life into the scriptures. But without the Holy Spirit, you just have clay. And that was the problem of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, those who took Christ to the cross. 
All scripture is given by inspirations. God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the world does not believe it. The world goes out of its way to say, no missionaries allowed. Leave these people to do the sins that they're doing. And we're going to cover up all the misery that's happening in the lives of these people. You know, they come along and say, oh, the American Indians were so, they had such a good life before, you know, the Europeans came. Nonsense. Read about Lewis and Clark expedition. How many Indians couldn't just wanted to get away from the life that they had been subject to and knew no other life? Uh, that's just one place. Well, anyway, the word of God, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that's why we come and we sit under the word. And that's why you endure such short sermons as this. Let's pray. Okay, you can have short sermons, but you can't have a pastor that studies. You can't have them both. If you get one that studies, then out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. If you get one that doesn't study, then he's going to be done in a few minutes. So, unfortunately for all of us, until we get to heaven, we've got to navigate things like that in life. Let's pray. Our Father, living and powerful, that is your word. A discerner between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And if it were not for the grace in Christ, we would be overwhelmed. But we're not overwhelmed. We're overjoyed. And we want to share it. We want to see others to come into this life. And that is a testimony to our own realization that we are sinners. That we need a Savior. That we have one. And that we want to see those without this Savior, Christ Jesus. We want to see them come to you. If you've been listening online or maybe you're here in the church building. And you've never opened your heart to Christ. But yet you sense God wanting a relationship with you. Well, you have to understand there are steps involved and he has placed them there. And the first step is you have to repent. You have to confess that you are a sinner. That you need a savior. Or else it all becomes a mockery. It all becomes something about you. But it is about God. And if it is about God, it is about his love for you. So that's a winning position. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then make this confession of faith without shame. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I break your rules. I go against your will. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you from this day forward to be not only the one that is my Savior who saves me from judgment to come, but also the Lord of my life who instructs me in righteousness, who's given, who will give me the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would receive me from this day forward as your own. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they be unashamed of it. In fact, may they be bold with their confession of faith. These things we commit to your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.